It's a new school year, and with it comes a new season of the Grounded Learners Guild. It's season three, you guys, and I know. Can you believe it? I hardly can. So what topic is first up in the GLG lineup? As we are jumping into new routines, yourself included, and getting to know many new faces, this episode, jam-packed with Casey's Mary Poppins bag of strategies, is something that will surely give you something to take away and a ton that you can apply. So... How many of us steal ourselves for something appallingly outdated or unhealthy every time someone begins a sentence with, well, when I was in school? Truth is, when a lot of us were in school, the ways we were taught and disciplined were formulated without the understanding of child or adolescent psychology needed to connect our actions to the consequences that resulted much less to learn from it. The good news is practices evolve and now we have restorative practices. But how do you start? And how do you explain it to non-educators? You've come to the right place today. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your hosts, La Capitana Casey Veach, team skeptic and idea slinger of spaghetti, Emily Coquelin, and me, clarifying the GLG butter, Jenny Labrie. We know our kids aren't the only ones who dabble in meltdowns or not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Who among us hasn't found ourselves on the receiving end of a young person reaching the end of their fuse or acting out? But the difference maker between one of those incidents ruining a whole day, a week, or even an entire school year and being able to move on and learn depends on the intentionality of the adults in the room. Are the adults equipped with strategies to help kids grow emotionally and behaviorally from it? So our intention of this episode is to dissect the meaning of restorative mindset and share some strategies for getting some of these core practices started in your classroom, your workplace, or your home. All right, so we are back for season three. Ladies, can you believe it? Woop woop. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And for our listeners, like it's literally been over two months since we've recorded. So this is going to be interesting. Well, it's good to be back and recording with you both. Getting getting going on Grounded Learners Guild Season 3. Woo-hoo. Let's hit the ground running, shall we? Let's do All it. All right. So, Casey, you're up. I'm wondering if you could help us by sharing a layman's definition of restorative mindset, restorative practices. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just preface this by saying there is an actual organization, right? The International Institute for Restorative Practices. And they have some great professional learning, training related to all of this. The information that I have acquired has come through conversations with officially certified restorative practice trainers. I've attended a number of trainings myself. So please, if you are really interested in this work and feel like it could be beneficial to your school, your classroom, definitely check them out because they are the true leaders in this. Now, when it comes to restorative practices, really within restorative practices, you've got two main components. You've got restorative language and restorative mindset. And restorative mindset really asks individuals to think about what is my role as a human person in this larger community, whether that's my classroom community, my outside of school community, my family, how do my actions impact 
the actions of other people around me and our overall environment as a whole. So when you are engaging with a restorative mindset, you really do have to encourage everyone around you to reflect when it comes to the decisions and actions that they make. And I'm thinking, Casey, of this question that just pops into my head is why restorative practices? What would you say to the average teacher that possibly is just hearing this for the first time or is new to the Mm -hmm. profession? And even let's just say if you even if you're not an educator, this applies, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to start with the first, the classroom, because that's where Mm -hmm. we saw many of these practices really start to get developed and honed, is when you had students who were attending alternative learning environments, alternative schools, because they had really negative behaviors. So they were expelled, kicked out of school for acts of violence, or, or so on and so forth. And these practices or these strategies through this restorative mindset lens really helped improve student behavior through creating relationships, common connections with individuals, and helping students unpack where their behavior patterns were coming from to try to learn new skills. So the reason I think it's important for classroom teachers to hear about this now is as a result of the past two and a half, almost three years, if you can believe it, this March, our students, our classrooms, were seeing an increase in really challenging behavior. We are also seeing in our classrooms, because of the nature of what school systems have become incredibly stressed teachers and you add those two things together challenging behavior with a stressed teacher and all of a sudden you have power over power struggle happening and with restorative what you essentially do is you flip that dynamic instead of it being power over it's power with okay so we are all part of this classroom community and we cannot function as a a learning community, as a a unit, if we don't care about each other and understand that, yes, our actions have consequences and affect our entire community. Mm -hmm. And it's not something where I can just send you to the office and have it, quote unquote, be dealt with there because it won't be dealt with there. And you still have that student coming back into your classroom the next day. So there's a lot of, I feel, there's a lot of, educators now who are leaving the profession because of that behavior piece. They don't feel supportive. They don't feel like they have those tools in their toolbox. Because if you think about it, when I graduated with my undergrad in teaching, classroom management was never a class that I took. It's the part of our profession that really, at least in my background, in my experience, I was never taught how to do that in a way that restorative practices allow you to learn how to do. Yeah. You're talking about a system that's been really strained. And I really like Mm -hmm. what you're talking about with educators being heightened and students being heightened because of whatever traumas that we've both experienced and not having the tools emotionally, that emotional resilience and also the tools necessary to work through conflict in such a way that's going to help us get to a higher taxonomy for learning, right? Because we've got to get to that foundation first. Yeah, and ear to the wire, so many educators, what you hear, what you hear people talking about saying, I've been meaning to learn more about that. So it's a really yeah. nice mm-hmm. moment for us to dive in and, and get people going with some of those things. So let's talk about some ways that you would get started building this type of mindset in your classroom. 
first, it really is going to all start with relationship building. It's almost this relationship building, getting to know your students is, I think, becoming one of the new dirty word phrases. Like, <laughs> I get to know my students. I get You're to like, know my duh. students. Uh, it, uh, duh. But yeah. Yeah. in our pre-conversation, I had mentioned to Jenny, it's stuff that teachers do do. The way you flip it into restorative mindset and restorative practice is it's done with intentionality. It's, okay, this kid just threw a chair at me. <laughs> How am I going to handle it in this moment? What tools can I pull out of my toolbox? And that's not a joke. It's not meant to be a joke. There are probably some people listening have experienced something like that. So I, no know, I don't mean to make it sound like a joke. But what can I do in that moment to keep the rest of my class safe, yes, but after that event has occurred, how do I re-engage that student who tried to hurt either myself or another classmate and try to repair the harm that has been caused? That's really about restorative because you can't put a kid who put back in a classroom who just threw a chair and expect everything is going to go back to normal. You bring up a really good point about many of us as educators think, okay, we're going to establish relationships on the onset. Yeah. And you do. And we do that. What do you do to restore it once it mm -hmm. has had something go wrong? Because yeah. then it's like we often think of, what is, okay, what's discipline then? This person yep. or this student needs discipline. Mm -hmm. But what does that look like? upon reentry is what you're talking yeah, about too. Yeah, that's part of it. So I know I brought a whole bunch in that last comment of what do you start with? Mm -hmm. You start with community building, getting to know students so that you can build emotional currency or social mm -hmm. capital. Like I want to be able to sit down with that student and say, we had a big moment. We had a big moment, but I know for a fact that that's not you because I saw this, I know you love baseball, I know you want to really learn how to play the guitar, I know that you had a really crappy time in your last class because you're struggling sitting next to someone who's teasing and bullying you. We know those things about the student, and so the behavior is a result of all these other pent-up things. It's not because that's a bad kid. And we can make those decisions and have those really deep repairing conversations when we can look at the person sitting across from us, the student sitting across from us and see that's a person who was hurting, who was also hurt, and their behavior was that hurt manifesting into something else. So not the first thing you want to start with, though, no. <laughs> um, when you're talking about restorative, but it's all about building social capital or emotional currency. There's a couple different words for it. How do I get that student to trust and feel like you made a mistake in that heightened moment, but separating the deed, the chair throwing from the doer? You do hear a lot of folks talking about wanting to build connections, start the year off with relationship building, community building in the classroom in a way that's authentic. In some ways you want to separate the 
getting to know you activities from getting to know right. you practices. You want to continue to do that beyond the first week mm-hmm. of school, right? Absolutely. And one of the foundational structures or rituals that you use when you're building a restorative classroom is, we'll talk about it later, but the circle. Having daily circles in elementary school, maybe these are called morning meetings, but you physically get kids in a circle. There's all the anthropological history behind why a circle is so powerful, but you have kids engaging, if not daily, incredibly habitual, regular circle discussions from anything ranging from, okay, so here's the content topic. What do we know about Newton and his laws of motion? And let everybody go around and share what they know to, if you found a $10 bill on the ground, what would you do with it? something as small or as content focused or as personality driven, you would engage in a circle conversation regularly to start getting to know that information. And it's something you build off of and build in over time. One activity that a friend of mine did in middle school was what I wish my teacher knew, like within the first couple of days of school. And that is actually not something you want to engage in during a public circle because you're asking kids to be vulnerable without having an opportunity to do, what's your favorite color? Or popcorn, kettle corn, or regular salted butter? Like those really low stakes kinds of questions to build familiarity and comfort before you get to some big repair-based conversations. And to those of us in the secondary world, I would say that there are ways that you can address content while still building community. For example, I mean, again, this is very low stakes, Mm -hmm. but in my class of seniors, we've been playing would you rather, but when you express your opinion, would you rather, you have to do claim evidence. I feel this way because dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. So that's a practice they're going to get into with their writing a lot more deeply. Mm -hmm. But for now, if they're just talking about why they would rather have unlimited tacos than unlimited pizza, that's fine with Mm -hmm. us. We just use this way of getting to know them, but we're not so far away from content that we can't tie it back in. Exactly. Another way of doing this is using temperature checks at the start of class, where you give kids from high school to middle to elementary even you give them a picture of a battery and have them color in as they're doing their first initial seat work what their battery or their energy level is like today or have them circle an emoji so that you have an indication oh well Theo is really sad today I can have a conversation with him during seat work or word work time hey you said you were really sad today what's going on So those little moments are where you can continually build community and build that emotional currency. Yeah, and this is supported even through, I'm going back to my days in the language classroom, and when you're thinking of language acquisition theory, Mm -hmm. one of the very first things you need to do is lower the effective filter in your students, and that effective filter is what filters out vulnerability, trust, knowing one another. If you don't lower that effective filter first, the language motor in your brain isn't going to want to produce language because you are guarded. And so that's a lot of the work we needed to do early on in a language classroom is to lower that effective filter. So there's a lot of practices that are backed up. Even in that regard, it applies across the board. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the coach in me digs this uh, next idea, which is about these restorative conversations, Mm -hmm. particularly that questioning that you mentioned earlier. Casey, how does that work when we do this? Yeah, so this rests onto that example I told you earlier. When you have a behavior 
that has resulted in impact or harm. Restorative practices really focus on asking five questions to a student or multiple students if there's been multiple students impacted. So the first question is what happened? Now, some people don't ask this question because, hey, I already know what happened. I like this question because it gives the student an opportunity to share their perspective and their truth about what they experienced. That can look in a couple of different ways. You could change the phrasing of it. There's some great different stems, but it's all derived from, hey, tell me what happened right before you came down to talk to me or what happened right before this thing happened. The next question is, what were you thinking at the time? And what were you feeling at the time? Because if you can unpack the rationale behind the behavior, or we know metacognition is one of those skills that helps students develop self-awareness when it comes to SEL. If you get them to explain or try to articulate, what was I thinking and feeling? Not only are you understanding the situation better and getting to know them as a person, but you're also providing them skills the next time they start feeling those same things rise in them. Okay, the last time this happened, I ended up (laughs) punching a kid in the face and I don't want to do that again. So you're building in authentic practice for self-awareness development. Oh, Casey, bonus points for, I'll do it for you, making the connection to the metacognition episode. Yes, both metacognition and SEL baking show with Carla. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the third question is, how have you and then how have others been impacted? So getting individuals to think about the consequences or repercussions of their actions. So it's the empathy builder. How did you pushing that student impact not only that student, but maybe impact other kids? How did it make you feel? How did it impact you? And then fourth, what is needed to repair the harm? So you made an impact on someone. What do we need to do to make things right? And giving that child, that student, the opportunity to think about what they can do, empower them to make decisions on what they can do to make things better. So if a student destroys a bathroom or vandalizes the bathroom, what's needed to repair the harm? Well, maybe the student needs to come up with a a way to help the custodian clean up that mess because they're the ones that contributed to it. And then finally, what needs to be done to prevent this from happening in the future? If you think about previous ways of engaging in discipline conversations, typically the way we have in the past operated is what happened and what are we going to do to keep this from happening again? You skip questions two, three, and four, which really helps build students' skills to not engage in the behavior in the future. So those are the five key restorative questions after a behavior has had a negative impact. And hearing you go through that, that kind of does harken back to the last thing we talked about, which is that emotional currency, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. If you haven't made that investment in your kids having trust with you, you can open up this conversation and your answer is going to be, oh, yeah, Yeah. it's not going to be that deep and reflective and honest conversation if you haven't built a foundation for it. Right. 
And just a little tip, too, that I've learned recently from a training that I was in. If you were involved or experienced the harm in any sort of way, you are not the right party to engage in this conversation. If the threat or the behavior directly impacted or was against you, somebody else needs to facilitate that conversation. Know that in those instances where a support staff or somebody else can be that backup for you, they should be because you already have an emotional tie to this and our logical brains and our emotional brains, they don't work at the same time. For any principal or leader out there, if you're asking staff to engage in these conversations, absolutely, but be careful about letting the teachers do it if they were directly involved. So dropping this right in the parenting pool as well, if they do something (laughs) to their sibling, go for it. If it's you, Mm -hmm. not so much. As a parent, do you guys ever find that you do this? You step into that role when you see your spouse or your partner, the temperature starts to rise and you become that third person because they can't in that moment. When you're talking about this, what was so fascinating to me was when I was thinking behind the biology and the Mm -hmm. brain science behind it, we're talking about the limbic system. The Mm -hmm. limbic system is that piece in your brain that if it is activated in a heightened way, Mm -hmm. your cerebral cortex, the stuff that's available to you to do higher thinking or to be able to learn content turns off. Off. It literally turns off. If we understand brain science and we understand that, all right, our limbic system is activated what are we going to do? Sometimes it's hard when you're thinking of the content specialists in secondary land and they're like, why am I talking about this? I have a curriculum I need to get through. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yes, that's important, but we have to also make sure we're aware of what's happening in the limbic system in our brain. Mm -hmm. And if that's heightened, it's actually going to behoove you. Isn't that a great word? Yeah. Behoove (laughs) you. And you're going to be more efficient in your practices if you know how to tame for lack of a better word, your limbic system in your brain Mm -hmm. so you can activate the part of the neural cortex that you need in order to access the information and the learning. You make time to get time. If you're constantly having to manage challenging behaviors and constantly stopping and stalling instruction, if you're going to do it anyway, (laughs) might as well do it for things that are actually going to make a difference in the long run. True story. You kind of already touching on it, so we might as well keep rolling there. More of the strategies for the teachers themselves. So we've talked about how that conversation occurs and and how you build the foundation for it, but what are just some ongoing strategies or things that teachers want to keep in mind? Well, the first is know yourself, right? Understand what your triggers are so that you can always exemplify, or as best as you can, exemplify calm and consistent behavior. I've got to know... I'm going to put us mm-hmm. on the spot here because we didn't prepare this. But what are our triggers? What are oh, your triggers, I was just Casey? going to share mine. Oh, go like, for it. Let's make this real, not just theoretical. What are your triggers, Veach? My trigger is the power struggle being put on the spot. My kid did this to me today. I'm going to hit you if you don't do what I want. I could feel myself like, mm-hmm. And I calmly looked him in the eye and I said, I'm not going to let you hit me. So I'm going to leave. It wasn't meant to be a threat, but it was like, I will not let you hit me. He never actually tried, so it's good enough. But I remember in the, when I was teaching in the classroom, the power struggle that, no, I don't want to do that. Well, 
I would want to say, but you need to. And that doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. So that my desire for control and have someone push back on that, that is a big trigger for me. If I don't know the student well enough or they don't have that kind of relationship with me where, oh, if you just getting pissed. <laughs> I think mine is actually one that makes restorative conversations maybe a difficult thing for me. Not that I'm not going to keep working and trying to get there, but I am most triggered when an innocent third party is taken down. Bring it to me all you want. But if Mm -hmm. you go after my co-teacher back in the day, if you went after my library aide, if you go after somebody who typically shouldn't get that, we've spent the time building up this relationship. And if you want to go off or you want to act out, do it to me. Like with my own kids, I don't like when they do that when they're being babysat or at school. Mm -hmm. If they're going to act out, do it here. When somebody else who doesn't deserve it, in my opinion, is being given the brunt of the bad behavior, I get really upset. My mama bear instinct kicks in for that other person, and then I get defensive towards them, I guess. Yeah, the one that comes to my mind seems more passive in nature, that it's less overt. It's often when the lack of preparedness, I'm thinking of in the classroom, if a student comes unprepared to be mm-hmm. engaged and apathetic, that could trigger me or heighten me a little bit. It's not as overt, but yet mm-hmm. you might take it as a slight and you have to realize that maybe it's not about you or your mm-hmm. teaching or your class or the lesson or whatever, and their lack of preparedness has to do with their home situation or has to do with mm-hmm. a hard, a difficult evening that happened prior or the class period ahead of that. So I think oftentimes as teachers, we're so reflective and this is human nature. We take it as like, is that a slight on me? Mm-hmm. And really oftentimes it's not. So being able to identify that that is a trigger within me and how can I come to that? For me, when I see somebody super heightened or it's something that's really like over, I tend to get very, very patient Mm-hmm. with the situation. And I personally can work through that a lot easier than some of those more passive slights. Well, and I think, Jenny, you clued in on something I'd mentioned earlier that I just wanted to name again under strategies for calm, consistent behavior. If you can come up with some sort of phrase in your head, separate the person from the behavior. Like I've tried to do this recently with my kid yesterday saying, Mommy, I'm a bad boy. I'm like, no, Connor. You make bad decisions sometimes, but those decisions do not make you a bad boy. So reminding yourself in a moment like that, that, okay, this behavior is bad. This is not a bad person. Right on. I interrupted on the triggers, so we've got a couple more strategies. (laughs) I had to know it was story time. No, I like that. That's a good piece. All right. So calm and consistent behavior. Obviously, that's going to be very important. What are some other strategies that we could put into place? Relational moves or routines. So ways that you are intentionally, number one, and regularly reflecting on the type of community you have and want to have. So we'll talk about this in a little more detail in a few minutes, but in a circle or in your classroom, think about is trust at the center? Do your students trust you and do you trust them to make good decisions? Do you know who they are as people? Is everyone responsible for each other? And there's a fine line in the elementary world between holding each other responsible and that tattling piece, but it ties back into someone's doing something that really is making a negative impact on our classroom community, getting kids to think about that. 
And then finally using routines like a circle, a regular circle to empower all voices, using a talking piece that gets passed from one person to another to give everybody a chance to have their voice heard and acknowledge. And then also to acknowledge those who maybe aren't present. So we'll have to talk with this particular student because they've been gone from our class, making an intentional move to reach out to that perhaps homebound student or a student who hasn't been there for a long period of time and reintegrating them back into the community when they return. I love that. That reminds me of Zaretta Hammond's work, actually. I think that Mm -hmm. came up in her stuff, too. All right. So what are some of the other ones then? We've got the circle of trust, so to speak, not to quote Mm -hmm. meet the parents, but... uh, (laughs) Well, and again, and that really is the big relational move is in engaging in a circle. But within the circles themselves, you have multiple different types. So you've got a community building circle. You have an educator circle where you're talking about content. You've got a peace circle where you're repairing harm. So there's at least eight different types of circles that you can do to help build in those relational moves. Yes, but also encourage students to practice empathetic listening. So I remember when, as an instructional coach, and I still hear it now when I talk about student discussion, that listening is a skill that students don't have as much of an opportunity to learn and grow. And here is a place where students can, in a circle, authentically practice that. So Um, quick question on that. With the circles, have you seen them in different sizes? Is it recommended that they're in large circles so it's the entire community? Do you break Mm -hmm. those into smaller circles so that more people have an opportunity to share and talk? What's the recommendation there? Yeah, the recommendation is full class. Full class, because otherwise you're fractioning. If you get upwards of 60 people, it's better to have two groups, but most classrooms are typically around 30 to 35. Maybe some people who are lucky have less than that. But you want to do full class because the idea is we're all here together. And so maybe you separate it into a two-day, 10 to 15-minute activity. And there are specific norms that you have to do when you do a circle for the first time and every time you engage in one you remind students of those norms and there are they are shared and built together one of the books that really will help people when they want to do circles and really integrate this practice is circle forward by carolyn boys and kate pranis it truly is a scripted guide to all things circles so let's say you want to help your students learn how to engage in norms like co-create norms you turn to that page in the circle forward book and it'll tell you exactly how to do it it's awesome it's a great book to really be page turner guide for how to start these as a huge norms nerd i'm trying not to be like really dig in on that (laughs) just keep the conversation going or i could ask like a bunch more questions about how to make norms for the circle yes so anyways i'll avoid temptation but i would be curious about what some of the other conversational structures are that could occur in these circles i'm curious about some of the different stems or ways that you start the kids talking so that they're not just sitting in a circle staring at each other Yeah, just a couple of other examples. Chicago Public Schools has a great PDF intro to restorative mindset. It's a great resource. Definitely check it out. Some low stakes, early entry level, getting to know each other 
tell us about a book, TV show character who reminds you of one of your family members and explain why. If you could go back in time, what's one thing you would do and why? If you're talking about creativity catalysts, so there's the getting to know you, the creativity catalyst. If you were a superhero, what would your power be? If you could have any animal for a pet, what would it be and why? You could even do goal settings or academic check-ins with students. What's I love the mo- that. Yeah. This is, an, <laughs> this is the exit slip on steroids, guys. Yeah. Actually assembling into the circle and having students share their last word or share the most important takeaway they had from the lesson that day you've got social check-ins or anticipation style like okay so i'm going to say this thing what's the first thing that comes to your mind so there's multiple different types of topics that you could have well thanks that was a chock full of information (laughs) that's what veach does i know mary poppins bag of awesomeness (laughs) and within the circle itself there's a whole bunch of other ways that make it more realistic like You are technically, when you're in a circle, not to have anything but like a centerpiece. So the centerpiece is often co-created. It may initially start with the teacher having a couple of important items there for students to look at. And that also is culturally sensitive because not only cultures, but students who are more neurodivergent don't want to make eye contact with the person sitting across from them in the circle. So giving a centerpiece or something else for them to look at while they're maybe getting used to the discomfort is really helpful. But as the year goes on, have students contribute things of meaning into that circle. So it also helps build that community and let students symbolically know that this is our place Mm -hmm. for us to come and talk. So there's lots of other little things within a restorative classroom that can really be symbolic and powerful. You know, Casey, as you're talking, what pops into my head right now, as far as that is concerned, I heard recently a lot of teachers right now that are talking about like, we used to have students that would be willing to present or be willing Mm -hmm. to talk and do this project in front of the class. And none of that, like, what did COVID do to our kids that Mm -hmm. they can't even look at each other in the eye as you're talking about, Casey, or what's going on that they don't have this comfort level. And whether we like this or not, we have to acknowledge that this is the reality of the types of students that we have. And we're not even just talking five, six, seven-year-olds. This is upwards in high school. Like This 15-year-old can't talk in front of people. Acknowledge that that's okay. And again, not defining, going back to Casey's you're saying, Mm -hmm. it's a behavior, not the person. This is stuff that can help foster that. It's time well spent that's going to help students access the information that they're going to need to eventually get to. But you've got to invest the time with them in these types of practices to build that not only skill set, but comfort level back into a community of people. Right. Yeah, you're providing a scaffold for them to really begin to have some of those circular conversations about their learning and about the content itself. But you have to begin with that investment. Everything builds from there. And so again, I had already mentioned the circle is the foundational piece. And you usually have within the centerpiece a set or at least one to two talking pieces. And you explain to the students the purpose behind and the meaning behind this particular talking piece. So my first talking piece that I used in a circle was my son, when he was born, my nephew gave him this cute little dinosaur. And dinosaurs are really an important hobby of my son. So when I look at this, I think of him. 
And automatically then, as it's being passed from person to person, there is a treasured item there and it gets people to take it more seriously and to not make light of it because, well, Veach is passing around her special dinosaur that reminds her of her family and family is really important to her. So it builds a little bit more of genuine community and respect because I shared something with you and you're going to take care of that item and also feel comfortable to share. Usually a circle starts with an opener, whether that opener is a poem or a statement. This is very actually reminiscent of question formulation technique where there's a stimulus. Yes. It's the QFT. same exact thing. Whoa, there are things, Which is why I said at the beginning, this is stuff we do. It's just yep. now moving it into that sphere of intentionality. We're building the community, the opener, all of that into now a circle. And then the rounds come after the opener where you actually engage in the conversation you express as the facilitator in that circle gratitude hey I really appreciate everyone's willingness to share and engage in this community again this is a part of who we are and what we do you express that gratitude and then you offer some sort of closing quote or have people go around one last time to share a takeaway so it's very ritualistic and formulaic but there's still ways to customize and change the feel of it when the need arises. I loved you even said this early on as we started this episode, but the ties to the anthropological sphere. And we're talking going back to the primitive way we were like designed to be together. And speaking from somebody like myself, who is very much visionary and what are modern instructional practices? How do we move that needle there too? There's something to be said about still acknowledging the beauty of humanity at its core and at its very primitive level, because there's something in our biology that also helps us access that community by doing these things in such a way that is important. It makes a difference. Yeah. We're literally teaching people how to be together again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to cry, but it does make me, like you said, Emily, teach people how to be human. So much of what I see and what I feel is going on today is if we were to just reconnect as people, things would be a lot healthier and safer if we saw not the person's politics sitting across from me or what that person did to me or how that person made me feel, but that's a person who feels things too. Things could be a lot better on all sides if we remembered and tapped into things that are part of who we are. The reason why we circle the wagons is because circles give us strength and protection. So let's bring it all back in this structure. So a lot of great information and a lot of awesome things that we've shared that we've talked about. Casey, thank you so much for taking the heavy lifting on the research with this one. It would be great if we could all share some takeaways. I'm going to go last. As you should. I'll go first, but I feel like it's literally what Casey just said, going back to basics. Okay, so I heard this recently where you can have control or you can have community, but you can't have both. This really applies here to this discussion that we're having together right now. Control is something that a lot of us do to help us feel safe when we're anxious. But what we really got to get back to and understand that that connection piece and that community piece is really what's going to heal us not the control. They can't coexist in a healthy way, let's say. So if we're going to heal, <laughs> mm -hmm. let's connect and let's, again, create those circles, create those spaces for us to come back together. It has to have that intentionality behind it. 
And I would say my takeaway is, especially as a classroom teacher, co-teacher in the first weeks of school, I think a lot of people can look at the stuff that we do early on to help us know our students, learn our students, and get to be involved in their lives as people is maybe a little corny or even inauthentic in some ways. But if we work to get to know our students, if we can look at our roster and say something outside of class about each and every one of them that is a good thing to say about them. One of my colleagues actually does that, goes through his roster of kids and makes sure he can say a positive thing about every kid in his class that is not related to the class itself, just so that he's got a piece of their world, their personality that he can bring to the table. And I think that's incredible. And I think that more teachers want to be considering the importance of this investment. It's not corny. It's something that really helps us build that foundation that everything else stems from. Like we said, these really crucial conversations to repair harm and even the circles themselves fall flat on their faces if we don't build the foundation for them to occur. Jenny, I think you mentioned it earlier, discipline, right? So many of us feel like the key to solving some of the behavior problems that we're seeing in classrooms now is more discipline, better discipline. It's connection, right? Mm -hmm. It's connection. And not only the connection between me and the student, or me and the principal and the student, it's the giving students an opportunity to make connections between the way they're feeling with their behavior in the hopes of connecting the threads so it doesn't happen. And we can build that authentic SEL self-management and responsible decision-making. If we don't give kids the language and the skills to do that themselves, this behavior escalation that we're seeing is going to get worse before it gets better. Not to be doomsday, but that's my takeaway is discipline. There's a difference between punishment and consequence. There's so many different types of consequences that we didn't even get into talking about this today. But that piece is, it's not about discipline, it's about connection. So on that note, with connection in mind, we were going to play a game, but Casey, this one's a little different. We're doing a little modeling here, right? Yes, yes. So I have a lot of gratitude that I still want to share at the end of this episode, because as you've maybe heard, I feel like I've learned a lot in the past year when it comes to restorative and restorative practices. So I want to give some gratitude later to some individuals who helped me along this journey. But one of them is actually a strategy from Kristen McKay. She has an LLC called Adjust Approach, and she taught us a game that's essentially called the questions game, where you have to go through and ask in a circle. So this is one of those low stakes circle experiences and ask one another questions that are related to the question that you were asked. So we're going to do three rounds of that and see who has the most interesting thread. For example, if I asked Jenny, what's your favorite fruit? And she asked me something totally left ball, but she has to be able to explain how she left ball. Oh my God. Left ball? Left what kind of <laughs> Keeping that in there, but uh, what? This has been too what, serious what of an episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like something completely out of left field, there has to be a justification for it. So we're going to try to ask each other three rounds of questions. I figured it'll start with me and then go to Jenny and then go to Emily and then just cycle three times through. And this is something you can do with students. 
too, as part of one of those low stake circles. And listeners, we have not even prepared. I don't even think Casey came cold. with a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. going in cold. Jenny. Yes. Tell me about your first car. Ooh. Emily, did you ever drive a purple S10 pickup? Casey, what color makes you feel the most peaceful? Ooh. Jenny, do you like the smell of lilies? Emily, when you like to arrange flowers, what is your favorite flower to arrange? Casey, what's a hobby that really brings you joy? Jenny, do you have any holiday traditions at Christmas time? Emily, yay or nay, Brandy Alexander's. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> I'm glad we're laughing because it was getting way too NPR. <laughs> well, we can wrap it up right there. We were almost <laughs> at round three. But one of the cool things about that particular game is, I don't know if you noticed it, but when, Jenny, you did the purple S10 pickup and then she pivoted right to color, yep. your brain has to switch. The code switching right? is cool. Yeah. The code switching is really cool. And we often can help students process through that piece and it also is a good indication of what i think is the cause of something or what i think is going to happen is not always going to happen it you tests have to be on your toes yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so really engaging in listening and doing all of that so hopefully y'all had fun listening to that chaos i'm sure we ended up having way more questions than answers for people listening yeah. like what like what where's this like girl? jenny what did happen in that purple pickup <laughs> Oh, if you only knew. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to put uh, some Brandy Alexanders in her and find out. <laughs> <laughs> Way to bookend that one. Circle. Circle. Um, <laughs> and not to bring things all serious again, but in all, we shared the Circle Forward book. I mentioned Krista McKay. Extra shout out to Jason Smith. He runs an organization called Restore Together, another great, phenomenal restorative trainer. My office, ROE4, has a number of restorative trainings coming up. One of them is a self-paced online course. If anyone wants to learn from Kristen, we offer that. So definitely check it out. And I just feel like I've learned so much about it in the past year. So thanks, y'all, for letting me talk and share it. For what? sure. It feels so good to be back. Season mm -hmm. three, you guys. Yep. Yep. So for any of you who have been talking like at the beginning of the episode, I really mean to learn more about restorative practices. There's options out there for you. And for those of you who are just jacked to be back for season three of Grounded Learners Guild, a taste of some things that are coming up. We are going to be doing an episode about sustainable change. So we're not necessarily just talking about sustainability, but really what makes a change last, what makes a change stick, what makes people get behind a change in a system. So it's got some reality TV ties. So we're going to keep that fun. And also this one's near and dear to my heart. I've mentioned in this episode, I'm a co-teacher and we're going to be doing an episode all about the practices and ways that we set up for and succeed at co-teaching. So that's going to be an awesome episode too we hope you can join us and that's a wrap it's so good to be behind the mics talking to you all thanks for choosing to come around to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education impactful leadership and the power of high functioning teams if you'd like to connect 
the power of the PLN continues as always, and you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com, and on Twitter at GroundedLGuild, at CVeacher, at TechCoachM, and at Jenny Labrie using the hashtag GLGPodChat. Do you even realize your feedback is everything? Feedback is a powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already or are finding us for the first time, how about leaving us a review as well as subscribing? You can find us wherever you stream. Thanks as always for tuning in to be a part of the Grounded Learners Guild. That's it for us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode. See you at the next Guild meeting. And don't forget, in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.